Hey everybody, welcome to Roll Hunting Resources Podcast. Alright, it is June 12th, and uh, if you are a smart individual anywhere in the south, Midwest, Southwest, West, man, I hope you're sitting in scantily clad, or you are scantily clad, uh, appropriately or not, uh, sitting next to a cool body of water. Um, and I am not. I'm I'm in my studio that I have yet to put the air conditioning in, um, and quickly feeling the temperature <laughs> rise. It's warm, people. It's warm. I'm taking a break. I I'm I'm drilling. I'm finally good. Fine. June twelfth. June twelfth. I'm finally drilling. Ah, uh, food plots. Goodness gracious, what a what a, I've talked about it before, but it's just the, the challenges just never cease. So, just one equipment failure, breakage after the other, just just you name it, you name it. So, yeah, it looks like I have a fuel pump that's I, I don't quote me on this, I don't know, we haven't diagnosed it yet, but quite honestly, I think my wife has it nailed. I think she, I, you know, she had a vehicle that the fuel pump would overheat. And then when the fuel pump started to overheat, it would cut the engine out, and you'd just have to let things cool down, and, and it would be fine. Um, I think that's what's going on with my Ranger. I, you, you know that I had the Ranger in the shop earlier on for a couple weeks because I had to change a whole bunch of stuff. Likewise, same thing with the ATV. I had to have that in there and get a new fuel pump because that fuel pump went out. <clears throat> so I have a feeling that's what's going on. I don't think it's a temperature sensor. I don't think it just it, the it, the machine starts getting hot, and then boy, that engine just kick just kills out. Now, anybody that has a Polaris knows that yes, if the if the engine temperature sensor gets over like 206, 208 degrees, it'll it'll you know obviously it kicks the fan in. But if it keeps if it stays too hot, it'll it'll throttle back. Uh, that engine and you can't go anywhere until it cools down well the issue is is the fan will kick in and it will cool down and the temperature will drop but the machine still won't go it's just just not going to get you've got to let it you've literally got to uh limp it over into either just well either turn it off and just walk away for you know however long um or put it in the shade and, and let it cool down for a while um anyway that's what's going on it's just brutal hot anyway i just posted what is it on one of the properties I work on over by Waldo. Waldo, where's Waldo? Well, where's Waldo? Waldo, Kansas. Where's Waldo, Kansas? Where Waldo, Kansas is east of Plainville, Kansas, over by Luray, north of Russell. Um, yeah, they're sitting at a heat index of, what did I say, like 112? Right now, where we are, it says the outside temperature's just shy of 90, about 90, but the heat index is 99. Let's see, Norton is just shy of 90, but heat index is 100. Uh, Almina, 90, almost 91 degrees, heat index of 99. Uh, where I, uh, friends of mine who I do some stuff with uh, up in Nebraska, their temperature is ni- just shy of 94 degrees up on those food plots, and that, that river bottom and the heat index is 104 up there. <clears throat> Uh, another one of their properties is 92, a heat index of 101. Um, yeah, Waldo 112 heat index right now. And then the one I just got done with this morning is a little, I got, I left the house at five and got out there to uh, spray a, 
um, another landowner's. He's got soybeans coming in. He's got eagle eagle soybeans uh, and just a lot of weed issues, which is typically, I mean, this is a new food plot area. Uh, makes sense. He he did a good job prepping the site, but there's just, I mean, that's the thing out here. When we're talking about Western Plains whitetails, Western Plains whitetails and wildlife and the habitats we are out in this area, this is this is all disturbed ground, folks. We do not have those native, you know, broad leaves, the native shrubs and all sorts of, you know, woody brow. No, we are on the far outskirts of whatever used to be any inkling of whitetail habitat. We were, we were out in mule deer habitat and whitetails came this way. Turkeys came this way largely because of agriculture. So, when we go in and we try to increase, uh, when we try to convert some of these, you know, quote unquote waste ground areas or some of these other habit, these areas, whether we take crop ground out, whether we take some of the brome out, which is what I'm working on now, um, the, the, the seed bank, uh, in the soil of just crap weeds and many of them herbicide resistant. We're going to get that, get to that in a second here. Um, it just, it causes it just it's a it's a pain in the butt. So this one I you know that he's got the soybeans coming in, wanted me to go out there and spray it. So I was able to get out there and spray it this morning. But literally, I left at five o'clock this morning to get out there to be able to get done by I think like eight thirty or nine o'clock. And by that time, the temperature was it was already over eighty five degrees, and and the wind was was kicking up. So it's a good thing I got everything done that I needed to do there. But come back home start start drilling in the new cover plot so i that's the other thing i posted so we've got a it's about 12 acres actually it's a big chunk just a big block big you know contiguous block that's a little bit longer than it is wide um it's not a square it's not i mean it's i guess you could say it's a rectangle ish but it's a fat rectangle so there's it, there's good area in the middle of it um, that was a brome field doing absolutely nothing for wildlife. Zero. Nothing. So we are we took that out of brome. We've we sprayed it last year, set it back quite a bit, went in and then disked the piss out of it this spring twice, killed ninety-nine point nine percent of the brome that's in it. There's a couple patches that are trying to, to bounce back. And then I went in there and I sprayed it twice because just weeds coming in but it's amazing this is an isolated chunk in the middle of the river bottom that uh, does not have weeds blowing in from neighboring properties because it's surrounded by trees however it is subjected to floodwaters from time to time and yep same thing um i mean it was a, a monotypic stand of brome which which had you know brome the beautiful thing about that is we talked about before is it it'll it's got such a thick sod layer that it'll generally choke out any weed and weed competition that's in it um which is good and it holds soil very very well but it just doesn't provide any it doesn't provide cover doesn't provide food for wildlife nothing it just it's great if you want to graze cattle or, or horses but that's about it so when we diss it up we released all the stuff that's in it and you know you on youtube you hear people like oh you just release that you know release the native vegetation <laughs> okay yeah so we've got velvet leaf kochia hemp herbicide resistant spiny amaranth we have ground amaranth well i'm going through my head i'm thinking uh buffalo burr what else 
Haven't seen any Lambs quarters. Yeah, those are the big ones right there right now. So trying to get those sprayed, and that's the problem is, you know, you, you look at glyphosate or, or Roundup um, or any contact herbicide that doesn't leave a residual in the soil as a pre-emergent. The herbicide-resistant amaranth, well, that's glyphosate resistance. That doesn't care. Arcosia, a lot of Arcosia is herbicide-resistant. That doesn't, that, doing nothing with that. Our uh, velvet leaf, you can spray that with glyphosate, and usually you'll twist it up or bend the leaves down, but then usually it can bounce back anyway. Uh, the ground amaranth, same thing. Doesn't want to, I mean, it just, so it's a challenge. But, so what we're doing for that is I've set a bunch of it back, and it's very, very small right now. And so I've gone in and we're drilled. So we're going to convert that into some good turkey nesting, brood habitat, deer fawning habitat, just a real diverse blend of cover and food that has enough diversity in it that allows, hopefully, like I said, some good nesting cover. And the pheasants, I mean, there's pheasants around there already. So, I mean, the pheasants are going to definitely utilize it. Hopefully the turkeys use it. We're going to make it to where it offers some good brood and chick habitat, which then also usually ends up defaulting to some really good fawning habitat as well. So we're going to diversify this thing eight ways from Sunday as we start to move into a, a permanent, you know, a perennial plot that, that is designed specifically for this purpose, for wildlife purposes. But right now, we've got to get something on the landscape that's going to be drought tolerant and they can overtake this thing and, and, and um, you know, pop and sustain itself through what we figured was going to be a dry hot summer and so somebody asked just a minute ago online what what the seed mix was it's a custom seed mix uh i've used green cover seed before and i like those guys a lot they're just about they're about an hour and a half away from me um i like i said those guys are a wealth of knowledge and really i love their website and i love the youtube channel that they have uh to learn about different stuff However, this year I, for these blends, I went with our uh, folks over at Star Seed. I, I'm friends with a couple of the guys over there, and we put together a mix that I think will work. Uh, some of it's uh, Milo sorghums, grain sorghums, some hybrid uh, millets, and there are some broad leaves and there are some legumes in there to throw a little bit of nitrogen in the soil. But the the focus is going to be on the the grain sorghums milo and the hybrid millet that way we can you know those are going to be drought tolerant those can provide some really good stubble really good cover to where it'll hold all you know all summer all fall all winter it'll stay good stubble and good cover and then next spring we can roll in and we can start to convert that into some switchgrass indian grass basically a very for lack of a better term a modified quote-unquote crp blend that has a lot more um, perennial legumes and broad leaves in it as well. So anyway, we'll keep you posted on how that project goes. But So that's what I'm trying to do. I, I started there today, got a little bit of it done, and then, the, of course, the ranger crapped out on me again. So I've got it. I just parked it over in the, in the shade, came back, took a shower, figured, you know what, rather than sit around, because I'm going to have to get up butt crack early in the morning to get back out in the field anyway. So I'm like, you know what, I'm not going to sit around and wait to do the podcast today. I'll, I'll knock the podcast out this afternoon in the heat. 
get it uploaded, get it ready to go, and then I can hopefully get to bed. I mean, I, I don't know. I'll probably go out after dinner when it starts to cool off. I can run in the headlights. I'll run for a while, and then uh, I may just park the Ranger in the in the down there, and then get up at butt crack early in the morning in the dark, and and just start rocking and rolling while it's cool because tomorrow's supposed to be even hotter. <clears throat> Monday, uh, no, what, well, hold on a minute. Yeah, it's Sunday. So Tuesday's supposed to be a little bit better. So we'll see how that goes. But anyway, um, yeah, so that's what that mix is. It's it's Milo's, Millet's. Uh, let's see, I've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten different species in there. Everything from clovers all the way up to the Milo's and Millet's. And Again, it's and they're all species that can do well in hot, dry conditions. Uh, now, obviously, the clovers are not going to come in if it's just hot and dry, but the seed will sit there and will be ready to go come fall once everything starts to cool down. And we still, hopefully, knock on wood, we get uh, some September rains. Um, yeah, nine, ten. Did I get it right? One, two, three, four, five. Yeah, 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 yeah. I did. I got it. I got it right. Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Yeah, yeah. Ten way mix. Now, and somebody, and this is the other question that has come up um, on some of these these complex blends. Um, just keep in mind, and I, and I think I've mentioned this before. The reason why I like to custom mix some of this stuff there, there's, you know, again, Green Cover C does a phenomenal job. Uh, Dr. Grant Woods does a phenomenal job. They have some predetermined, you know, preset mixes that they've custom done that that they're they're awesome mixes. Here's the only the, the the challenge we have in my neck of the woods. Some of those seeds in some of those mixes are seeds that require a little bit more moisture to pop. Other seeds in there are very drought tolerant. They don't take a lot of moisture to pop. Some of those seeds that don't take a lot of moisture to pop grow very, very aggressively in those hot conditions, hot, dry conditions, where some of the other seeds in there might might take a little bit to get going. What I've seen in my area, if all of the seeds in that blend are not generally now i'm going to let me qualify this i know my seed mix has different size seed in it and i know that some of the seed in my seed mix is joyce just go, joyce joyce who's joyce just going to sit in the soil profile this summer likely and not get going until later this fall. That's fine. It's by design. I put them in there knowing that so that way when the milos and the millets mature and start to dry out, the other species can start coming on without me having to go in there and trying to embellish that plot, drive through it with my drill. I could absolutely drive through it and drill in, a, say, winter wheat or cool seasons. But when I do that, because I have the Genesis 3, which sits, it's not a big tractor. It's not, a, you know, regardless, it doesn't matter what Genesis machine you're using. Even if you're using a Land Pride, well, the Land Pride would probably actually do a little better because the, the bulk of the machine sits taller than the arms. And so the arms could probably slip through some of that Milo stubble and sorg or the uh, millet stubble and leave it generally standing. But the way the Genesis machine is built, there's a lot of low line, excuse me, low lying um, accoutrement under there that is just going to knock that stubble flat. I don't want that. I don't want the stubble to go flat. I want that stubble to stay vertical all winter 
and then into late spring. Because I know that this, well, I don't know. I'm hoping, I'm fingers crossed, if everything works the way I, 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 yeah, I'm hoping, if Mother Nature cooperates, um, there's going to be some really good, diverse, thick cover that should be really good nesting habitat for next spring. We'll come in next summer. I'll go through and broadcast some stuff over the top of it to allow it to to slowly start to convert itself in from late spring into early summer and then as it continues on into summer. But I want that stubble to stand. So I don't want to drive through it. So I put these species, I put some of those species in there, the clovers, chicories, and some of the other stuff. I put those species in there now, knowing it might not germinate now, but it will absolutely germinate come August, September when we start getting those rains. And then it'll have probably a good two months of growth to get a good foothold and then do well this fall, and then overwinter, and then really kick in gear next spring. Okay, does that make sense? So I say that because if if the mix you have has a bunch of different seed sizes, and you, you have a bunch of different seeds that require different levels of soil moisture in order to get them to pop, if you are faced with dry, hot conditions, your drought-tolerant species, especially your grasses, are going to germinate first. They're going to start coming in. And quite honestly, depending on how the moisture cycle rolls itself out, what I saw last year on some of my plots, they absolutely overtook the plot. Now, I'm not upset about that because it did put some good stubble on the landscape, but it choked everything out. So I had like a 19, 18 or 19-way blend last year from green cover seed, and the the... 99% of the plot were Milo's, Millet's, and hybrids, you know, sorghum sedan grasses. And there might be a tiny brassica that peeked through here. There might be a, a mung bean that, that tried to come up here or a, a, a cowpea here or, you know, a, a sunflower tried to poke here. No, they, it, it ended up being dominated by the, the, the grasses, which are very, very drought tolerant. So, Yes, from a cover crop strategy, from a just a pure cover crop, it worked. It worked great. I mean, I had good cover. You know, people talk about armor on the soil. I had good armor on the soil. I had a good cover crop for the for for some of it. Now your German millets, like your proso millet and that type of stuff, that stuff came in awesome. But it didn't it doesn't have a lot of, of carbon in it. it. It doesn't hold good stubble over winter, especially when you have 80 mile an hour winds. It just blows that stuff away. So on that plot, I had some really, really good you know, areas of cover. Other areas kind of got blown out. And guess what? Mare's tail just exploded. Uh, velvet leaf exploded in there. So I had to come in there and just nuke the piss out of it. And, and it, you know, we literally, for that plot, we literally had to nuke the piss out of it with uh, um, herbicides that could, ta- could tackle, uh, you know, the amaranth and the velvet leaf and that type of stuff. Which then left us to, we just put some fertilizer down, we, we rolled into corn, you know, Roundup Ready corn out there. So, And right now, I'm looking at all sorts of, because of the way the, the rain hit and everything, all sorts of new weeds are coming in. But it is what it is, let the corn come in, and then we'll, we'll, we'll start tackling things uh, differently in the future. But regardless, the point I'm making, for those of you that want to get in on this kick, this, 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 this movement of cover cropping, for wildlife food plots, just understand 
different species of seeds are going to germinate differently depending on what your moisture cycle is and how much soil moisture you have in your profile and your temperatures. If you have adequate moisture, everything will pop, everything will come in largely at the same time, everything will grow vigorously, and everything will be equal on an equal footing as it competes for sunlight, and you'll just get this beautiful, beautiful diverse blend. But if you get hit with drought stress, understand your plot can shift one way or the other, especially if, if it's drought stress, it's going to shift more to those, those drought tolerant species and that's going to dominate. So when I came up with my blend, I purposefully went in and said, okay, I, the clovers and chicory and, uh, aside, all of the other species that I want in there, I want wildlife food, but it needs to be drought tolerant. It needs to be heat tolerant and I want all the species to be that, and I want the seeds to be of relatively similar size. So that way, no, no, it's 11. Sorry, I forgot the sun hemp. I want those seeds to be relatively similar sizes so they all take about the same amount of soil moisture to get them to germinate and get the root down. That way, they all, they're all drought tolerant. They all don't need... Each one of them needs minimum soil moisture in order to germinate, so which means they can all start to compete with one another on equal footing. So hopefully I get more than just one or two species dominating. Hopefully I get five or six of those species all coming in together. This is where the art form is, man. This is, I mean, we are in a, di this is why I started the Western Plains Whitetails and Wildlife. You'll see the hashtags on some of my posts, Western, Western Plains Whitetails or hashtag Western Plains Wildlife. We're in a different world out here, and it, and it is a little different um, as far as what you see everywhere else. So there's a nuance to it, and you've got challenges. Like I, like I said, I, you know, the, the, the gentleman I was, the landowner I was working with, the friend of mine that I was working for this morning, um, we were talking on, on his soybean field. Again, he did a great job on the prep. I, I'm no, this is no joke. He did a great job on the prep of that plot. I know what it looked like last year because I took, I did a, an inventory of it. It was rough. This whole area was weeds and gray and brome and gray, also and native gray, just, 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 and it was brome weeds. And there was little pockets and remnants of some native grass in there that just were all decadent and, and old, but it was a great place to have a food plot. If nothing else, start the food plot, get control of some of the weeds. And later on, if you want to if, you know, roll it into a, a cover plot, or you can always do something different. But right now, he wanted to roll in on doing a food plot, and he was smart. He said, okay, I need to put in something that's going to be Roundup ready or, or herbicide resistant, so that way I have the ability to have a food plot coming in, but I also have the ability to throw some herbicide on it. Well, the big issue was, is a lot of what was coming in was kochia. The question is annual kochia. The question is, is that annual kochia herbicide resistant? Now, when I was talking to him, because if, or excuse me, typically when you say herbicide resistant kochia, you're talking glyphosate resistant kochia. And in some cases, even some of the kochia is getting uh, 2,4-D resistant. You've got to really nuke the piss out of it with 2,4-D in order to actually twist it up and kill it. Um, dicamba works really well, but that's the problem. Unless you have dicamba ready, you know, Banville ready or, or what they're called extends beans, um, you'll nuke your beans, period. Well, Eagle soybeans, as far as I know, they're glyphosate tolerant, but I don't, I don't think right now they're extends 
style beans. I need to I need to look that up. I know in the past they were glyphosate. I don't know if they've modernized them and gone uh, to where they can handle dicamba. I don't know because I don't use them. I just don't use Eagle soybean. I just use in my area when I tested Eagle soybeans in the past. I did not see much. I, I did not see enough of a difference in growth between crop soybeans and Eagle beans to justify me buying the Eagle beans and have them shipped here and then using them, especially given the fact that we do have amaranth, koshas, and everything else that are herbicide resistant, where it doesn't matter if I spray glyphosate on them. So the point I'm making is, is the, the comment from the landowner was, well, you know, this area hasn't been farmed. This area hasn't had any disturbance, blah, blah, blah. blah so those, those koshas should be fine. Well, maybe the problem is this. Any species of plant that is that has become herbicide resistant, if it's open pollinated, meaning it sends pollen out in the air and then it and then the flowers collect pollen that's floating in the air, you can have pollen floating ten miles. So your neighbor five miles away, ten miles away, can have herbicide massive, just massive stand of just nastiest, nasty herbicide-resistant amaranth or kochia or whatever, if it travels through the air and that pollen comes across your field, well, guess what? You just pollinated, you just bred, you just created, you are starting to grow herbicide-resistant weeds. So that's what makes things so challenging. Yes, you got two things. One, not getting weed seed source into your plots in the first place. And then when you do have weed seeds in there, what's drifting in the wind? All right. Out here, man, it's challenging. Velvet leaf. It, again, I've talked about hemp. I really don't mind hemp. Hemp can add some diversity. Hemp is easy to control, but man, oh man. And buffalo burr, that's the other one. Buffalo burr is easy to control. I don't mind. It's a pain in the butt because it's spiny and nasty and it, it just, it's, it's just vicious, but it's easy to kill. But it, it's prolific. It'll come in everywhere. So, but the ones that are tough to control, velvet leaf, spiny amaranth, kochia, herbicide resistant kochia, uh, and then the, then the Johnson grass and, and shatter cane and that type of stuff if you have them in your area. So anyway, that's where you get, you know, these type of things you got to consider when you're doing food plots out here. Otherwise, you are going to end up in a train wreck. You're going to end up in a train wreck. Another uh, uh, guy just got a hold of me through um, direct message. He wants to play with some food plots. He doesn't have a drill. He's going to try just disking some stuff up, broadcasting some seed, and disking it under. And I told him, I said, that can work if you have the moisture. And now he's out in my neck, you know, in my this Western Plains area. I told him, man, timing. Timing is going to be everything. Getting that thing disked up, getting it, you know, quite honestly, oh, man, there's going to be a, there's a bunch of different nuances with that. The problem with disking things, it dries the soil out, exposes weed seed, and then you hope and pray that you get a rain on it that's, that's ample enough. And, and you hope you have the soil that can hold that soil moisture. Like if you're dealing with sandy soils, you can get a good rain on it, but the, the, that moisture just falls right out the bottom of, uh, right down through the soil profile. And then the, the surface ground is dry again. You want a good loamy soil. And I, if you can, I mean, even maybe a little bit of a clay in it, but I mean, a, a good loamy soil 
that you get this the rain on it, it holds that moisture for long enough to pop that seed and then long enough for that seed to get at least that the initial little tap root down to 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 get a root hold and then okay hopefully maybe you get you know you get some moisture on there to where that seed can take off and actually germinate you know get a good germination get that you know above ground growth and root growth to where it can just start you know the engine of the plant just can crank right along and its root can keep reaching down and grabbing moisture even if you don't get rain on the surface but if it's dry man the scratch and scatter or the huck it and hope you know you basically where you're disking it in and, and that is so finicky as far as moisture you you've got it to, you've got to time that with some good rain otherwise it's it it could be a challenge but anyway so that's what's going on still scrambling to try to get that stuff done i've i've got a bunch to drill but i'm i'm whittling at it i'm whittling at it uh the corn plot's coming in nice had a little bit of a a little uh, on it it just unfortunately doesn't matter there was a little bit of an issue there i ended up drilling the corn a little bit denser than what i wanted uh that's fine though because i history shows that when these temperatures start climbing like this deer will go out there and they will chew on that those young corn seedlings like they they just treat them like watermelon so if i if i planted that corn too dense i'm sure that the white tails are going to come through there and they're going to pick it apart and they're going to nibble on some and they'll knock that density back but corn's coming in good Uh, all the other plots are are that that are still growing are looking good so fingers crossed man Usually about June, this is that's the thing. This is about the time when it starts getting hot. Now in the past, it's it's usually a little bit later in the month, but we'll see. Hopefully, fingers crossed, we get. I I just want you know I I can't be greedy and and say I want July and August rains because I know that's probably not going to be the case. I, I hope it is, but I I know that's probably not the case. But usually we can count on at least a couple rains in June, and we've gotten a couple really good rains in June. I'm just if I was to be greedy right now, what I really, really, really want, give me a, a good solid next three, four, five days where I can get all my my plots drilled and in the ground. And then give me like one or two more rains on that thing. Just just give me some just just give me a couple more rains in June. Get this stuff about just just give it a head start and then okay, it is what it is. For July and August, it is what it is, and then fingers crossed we get some rains in September. But Anyway, we'll see. So for those who are asking questions about what I'm drilling, what I'm planning, that's it. That That's it. I'm, yes, I am still rocking and rolling on my stuff. Still fighting with stinking equipment issues. But, uh, and the other answer is yes. For those people that were asking, yes, you know that I help people with hunt plans and that type of stuff as far as elk consulting and all that stuff. But the same thing goes with the wildlife stuff, the habitat stuff. If you want to set up a time, you want to go through some property stuff and go and pick apart seed mixes and, and techniques and all that type of stuff, absolutely. We can set up a time and we can we can we can pick through your your properties. And if you are, you know, out in my neck of the woods, hour, hour and a half around, you know, I don't care. I'll go wherever you want me to go. Just pay for the fuel. But uh, especially most of the most of the folks I work with that are about an hour and a half uh, radius around here. So yeah you're out here especially for absentee landowners that have a piece of property or lessees that have a property they want to do stuff you're not out there every day to be able to to 
to monitor, or at least not every day, but at least once a week or every other week to keep an eye on it and get and do the management things that need to be done in order to make sure that there you have a long-term success. Um, if you want help, just let me know. All right. And then the other thing too, this came up and I talked about a little bit about the Row Hunting Resources website, the Elk Hunting Institute, Elk Module. Uh, I talked about a little bit of, on some of the, the stuff going on, um, you know, for those people who are subscribing. The other thing too, is I forgot to mention, and this came up just a little bit ago. Don't, don't freak out. If let's say you're in there, you're subscribing, you type in the wrong email and you go all the way through. And then all of a sudden it's just not working and you can't log in and everything. Again, I, I talked about it last time, typing in the wrong email when you're subscribing is probably the number one issue that a lot of people have. Don't fret it. Just send me a message through Instagram or just send us an email through the website, contact at rowhuntingresources.com, contact, like you're, you're making contact, contact, contact number, contact at rowhuntingresources.com, and we'll we'll take care of it. I mean, I mean, we'll try to do it instantly, you know, the, but if, usually we can get, get it taken care of inside of... 24 hours. Most of the time it's within a matter of minutes, if, or if not a matter of hours. So don't, don't freak out thinking you're, you're losing time. No, we'll, we'll get, we'll get you, we'll get you squared away. We'll get you squared away. All right. Um, yeah. So I talked about some of the, the habitat consulting stuff, the weeds and the seed mixes. and, And like I said, there's a lot of good stuff on, on YouTube. But a lot of the stuff that's on YouTube is west of here or north of here where they get more moisture. And then some of the stuff of, from people doing stuff out here is good. It's good information. But there's also, again, you got those little nuances. So you got to be careful. You got to be careful. You just can't look at what somebody does in, in Wisconsin or Missouri or Pennsylvania or whatever. And you're like, yes, that's awesome. That's the best. Mm. Maybe not. Maybe not. All right. So. Here's what I wanted to ask today. So I, I I wasn't planning on making this an overly long podcast, but you know how I am. All right, it is what it is. Uh, and I and I'm and I honestly I'm gonna try to make I, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to not make this just a, a bitching rant. All right, honestly. Now some of this chaps my ass, and I know that I'm probably gonna get if if I if I just get in that flow state and I go down the rabbit hole, I might get a little elevated. Because it does, some of this stuff does piss me off. Um, and I do get heated. But I started, th- I'm, but I, I want to pose a question. And this is honest. Um, and I'd love to hear your opinions. So here's, here's, the, here's the question. And it ties in with, is hunting conservation? Is hunting conservation? You know me, my bias these days is I, I, I'm leaning more and more towards no. Hunting pays for conservation. But conservation is conservation. Like conservation efforts are conservation. Just because you shoot something in, you know, a turkey, just because you shoot a turkey in the face doesn't mean you're you're participating in conservation. Now, if you go out of your way and you cut a check to the National Wild Turkey Federation, that's not your $100. That's your philanthropic uh, generosity, your giving, your charitable giving. If you cut a check to the Turkey Federation for a membership, now we're starting to tap into conservation. If you cut them a check 
uh, you know, for a hundred, two hundred, five hundred, a thousand, whatever. You you make a, a a monetary donation for their habitat work. Now we're talking about conservation. Same thing, National Deer Association. All right. Elk Foundation, same thing. Pheasants Forever, same thing. If you start Ducks Unlimited, Delta Waterfowl, Bighorn Society, Wild Sheep Foundation, all those. If you if you <clears throat> pull your checkbook out or you pull your credit card out and you go to their organization <coughs> and you spend money there, especially if you spend money above and beyond their membership level, if you're buying raffle tags... If you're buying auction tags, especially, okay, if you're spending money above and beyond with these nonprofit organizations, okay, now we have a conversation about conservation. Absolutely, I will freaking shake your hand. But if just because you shoot a turkey in the face doesn't mean you're conservation, and quite honestly, not to ruffle too many feathers, we'll talk about predator management in the future, but just because you put a 22 to the head of a raccoon doesn't mean necessarily that it's conservation. And just because you deer hunt doesn't mean it's conservation. Hunting, I'm sorry, my my, 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 my mindset these days, hunting pays for, hunting, pay, hunting pays for the agencies that engage in some level of conservation. And then we can go from there. Now, but here's a here's something that struck me. Okay, so I'm not going to go into all of our finances. It's not it's nobody's business. But I but I want to make the point. All right, I want you to see exactly what. And again, this is uh, okay. No, no, it is sitting. I, 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 fine, I might be sitting on my high horse. Okay, maybe, and I don't even know how high my horse is. Maybe mine mine's a pony. Maybe I'm just sitting on a pony. I don't know. Maybe I'm just sitting on a jackass. Maybe that's what I'm doing. I don't know, but I'm sitting. I'm sitting here in the saddle. And and I'm as as someone sitting in the saddle, I will toot my own horn, so to speak, if you will. And I will say yes. All right. So, you know, for row hunting resources, we canceled all of our turkey, uh, other than two hunts, uh, the first two hunts, a youth hunt and then uh, a couple other guys. I had to I had to get I had to get in touch with all of our other hunters and and basically tell them the bad news and say guys and I did not even keep any deposits. I did not keep anyone's deposits. I canceled the hunt. If if someone cancels on me after they've given a, a deposit, okay, there's there's stipulations and there's there's rules that we have where okay, depending on what happens, no, maybe you don't get your deposit back. Uh, maybe that deposit just gets rolled for next year, whatever. But I'm the one who canceled the hunt. I canceled it. This is my call. So no, I'm I'm not going to hang up. No, we're not keeping someone else's deposit. So we canceled everyone's hunt and the people that sent money, they got their money back. All right. So not only, well, there you go. We didn't make a dot. Well, no, we did a couple of hunts early. We did, but normally the hunts that I run for turkey. So just so so everybody is aware, the money I take in, how I I don't lease a single acre of ground at all. Okay. I work with the landowners. My job is to manage the ground, make sure it's taken care of, 
make sure we don't have poaching, trespassing, damage to crops, all that stuff. Because the first, one of the first, well, the first, well, one of the first landowners that approached me back in 2013 when we first came to this area, he had, he let anybody in their brother's uncle hunt because his, in his idea was we had, he had deer damage, you know, uh, crop damage from whitetails, legitimate crop dan- damage in the, in the middle tens of thousands, like between 20 and $30,000 annually of crop damage from deer, legit. And so his issue, his thought was, if I just let everybody come out and hunt, they'll just whack the piss out of deer and they'll help reduce my crop damage. Well, anybody that's coming to Kansas, no, no, that's not what they're doing. No one was shooting any does. And quite honestly, no one was shooting any bucks because everybody was holding out for that 150, 160, 180, 200 inch whitetail. And everybody and their brother's uncle, it became the tragedy of the commons where everybody and their brother's uncle, especially locals, and there were some non-residents as well, all descended upon these properties because they knew the landowners didn't care if, if people were out there. And it just beca- it became that. It became the tragedy of the commons where everybody was you know driving across crop fields, putting two tracks across some of these fields, did, you know damaging fences, getting in fights out in the, you know, just, it, it became untenable. And more importantly, the landowner was not seeing the benefit on the landscape that he was hoping to see. So he came up to me and said, hey, is there something that we can do? This is my problem. This is what I would like to do. You being a wildlife biologist, you being a property manager, what are your thoughts? I said, well, here's what you can do. And here's a couple options. And he was like, let's go. And I said, okay. And he's like, no, I want to go all in. All right, excellent. Next neighbor next to him was like, you know what? Absolutely. We got problems here, here, and here. Let's put our, let's put those properties in as well. And we went all in. Okay. So how it, it works is my, I pay for my services by the hunts that we run, but the money that I bring in gets split between me and the landowners. Now that money gets split. But how we how I've set it up, five hundred. Let's just take let's just take our deer hunts. Five hundred dollars from every deer hunt fee immediately gets pulled off, and that is earmarked for habitat. Whether it's food plots, whether it's habitat improvements, whether it's habitat conversion, you name it. Five hundred for every deer hunter we have. Five hundred bucks, wink into a pot, and that's earmarked specifically for habitat stuff. Then the remainder gets split amongst us all in different percentages. And then here we go, hit the ground running, putting money on the ground to, to, to do our food plots and habitat work and all that type of stuff to make sure that we have a long-term play to make sure that we are taking care of the resource and, and not just raping and pillaging the landscape, okay? Because we could, we, I could sell, I could have turkey hunters out here every freaking day of the two-month season. Absolutely. The demand is that high. I could have deer hunters in the tree stands, in the ground blinds, in the box blinds, almost, almost every single day of the season. The demand for hunts is that high. But I know for a fact, I've got 7,000 acres that I'm currently responsible for. Relevant acres. That where there's deer and turkey and pheasant and quail, oh my, okay, 7,000 acres that I'm, that I manage. I know that we can only responsibly, ethically run a handful of deer hunters each year so that they can have a quality hunt experience. 
and have a hope of, of maybe seeing a giant and, and shooting a giant. But at the very least, they're seeing deer and they're not seeing anybody else around them. And they have a peaceful hunt and it's them or their buddy or maybe one other guy in camp and, and they can just ha- have a quality hunt experience on the landscape. So I don't run many deer hunts. Same thing with the turkey hunts. I've talked about it before. I look at how many, in January, February of each year, I'm looking at the winter flocks. I'm looking at the the bachelor groups. I'm taking inventory. How many mature toms do we have in the landscape? And then I'm scaling back. I'm like, all right, we've got this many here. We got this many here, this many. Okay, I can take one bird out of that. I can take two birds out of that group. And I can take one bird out of that group. And oh man, there's a pile of them there. So I could take probably four or five out of that group. Okay, based on how many birds I think we're going to hold and all the other landowners around us, the outfitters especially, I think we can reasonably take eight birds off the landscape. All right, well, then I'm going to book the, the the hunters that can responsibly, ethically, you know, take though that no more than those birds. And then we take the money that we generate from that and we roll it back, a bunch of it, we roll back on the landscape to make sure we've got those critters again for next year and next year and the next year, the next year, and the next year, hopefully leaving the place better than, than what it was when I, when I showed up on the landscape. That's what we do. Now, I know I'm not alone. Because I know, because of what you guys have sent me, I know there's other outfitters out there that do that. Now, A, landowners notwithstanding, absolutely. Some of you, if you own land, I know for a fact that a lot of you guys are doing the food plots. A lot of you guys are doing the habitat improvement projects and all that. That's why some of the stuff that, you know, Growing Deer TV, you know, Midwest Whitetail, uh, Jeff Sturgis, all those, why they're so popular, all right? Land and Legacy Podcasts and some of these other guys that are talking about, that's why it's so popular. Because a lot of, especially landowners, are doing it. Same thing with lessees, people that lease ground out here. I work with a group of landowners that have that are forward thinking that make sure that they, they look at it. They're like, we want to make sure that this is a, a a not only a profitable operation, but a just a good, solid, enjoyable, ethical, responsible effort to where three and five years from now we can reap the benefits of what we're doing now, right? Same thing with a lot of the landowners that I'm working for. That they just lease ground. Some of them own their own ground and they live somewhere else, but they own ground out here. Or some people lease ground out here to for hunt. But the same thing. These are families. These are hunt clubs. These are these are just pure landowners that are saying, okay, I bought the ground or I leased the ground, but but I want to put stuff on the ground that not only is going to benefit me and my hunting, but it's going to benefit when I come out here in the spring to walk, you know, to, to go shed hunting with my kids. We see turkeys, we hear turkeys, we see and hear quail, and we find deer sheds on our property. And we have a just a great time in the river bottoms and, and, and have fun walking around. When we come out in the summer, we see the wildflowers, we hear the birds, and we just, we get the full experience year round because of what we're doing as far as our habitat stewardship on the landscape. Oh, by the way, yeah, it's really helping our, our deer hunting and our turkey hunting as well. Awesome. Okay. And then some of you have sent me links to other outfitters around Western Kansas that did the same thing. They shut down their turkey hunts this year just because of the responsive, you know, just, it was just not ethically responsible to continue to hunt. With all that being said, we know damn well the other the other side of that pen that that uh, that coin or the pendulum swings hard the other way where there were some outfitters that didn't give a shit. They just raped and pillaged just right on through. They shot everything that they could. 
knowing full well we're in a crisis mode of population crash. Nope, we're going to shoot everything in the face we can. And for deer, all you see on their their Instagram pages and Facebook pages is book a hunt, book a hunt, book a hunt, book a hunt. I've got a space here. We got space there. We can put two people here. We can put these here. You know, just book now, book now, book now. It's like exactly what animals are you going to shoot? What 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 are you providing? You're 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 marketing the hunt. Now, I'm, hey, a, a private business owner can can market their, do whatever the hell the private business owner wants to do. The problem is is when you are in the business. Whether you're a car dealer, whether you're an insurance salesman, or whatever, when you're in the business, you know what your business is, or especially construction. If you're a construction foreman or a, or a general contractor, and you, it's your responsibility to bid projects and and you're managing projects, you know damn well what it takes to build a house. You know damn well what it takes to build that bridge or that road. Or when you are an insurance salesman, or it doesn't matter, car deal, you know what it what it takes to for 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 you to take inventory of that vehicle, do all the stuff, and then turn around and sell that vehicle. You know what it costs. But when you see other businesses in your field undercutting, being dishonest with with their marketing, essentially all out lying to the customer about what they're actually getting, it kind of chaps your ass. And you know damn well it's not right. Now, the, the, the real problem, you know, it's one thing if, if, the, if, if the competitor or if, the, or if the other person in your field is doing something illegal. Just raise the red flag. But when they're, when they're just, it's completely legal to do what they're doing. It's just, man, they are literally walking the line of responsible ethics. It just chaps your ass. It just does. And all you can do is what you can do and you can just try to work around whatever you were doing. But I sit there and I see other people in my area give zero shits about putting anything back on the landscape. They're just going to book a hunt. They're going to set their, their assets right on our fence lines or some other landowner's fence line. They've got a marginal piece of ground that there's no rhyme or reason why a deer would or a turkey would ever walk across that. Maybe at night a deer would move from one side to the other. But they're but no no no, they can butt right up against our good stuff. They're gonna put their their blind, their bait pile, and they're gonna sucker as much as they can across that fence. They know darn well that we're putting money in the table, putting money year round into growing and in doing things to to ensure healthy, you know, productive wildlife conservation. And they're just there just to take, 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 take. So anyway, I digress because we canceled our hunts. Some of the other people didn't. Likewise, I've got a bunch of deer hunters coming in this fall and I have a feeling a bunch of them are, you know, I've already got a bunch that have told me that they drew their tag. Okay. So I got deposits coming in and I know that other people are going to be hopefully getting a hold of us and saying, yep, yep. We drew our tag, drew our tag, drew our tag. Yep. Here we go. Okay. Awesome. That money's going to come in. However, because we had no money come in from our turkey hunts, we we didn't have the, the pot of money that we normally do, that we normally roll into habitat-specific work to get things set and, and rolling for this summer and fall. So did we just say, okay, well, there's nothing we can do, so we're not going to do anything? No. We know this is a long-term play. And quite honestly... Given fuel prices, herbicide prices, uh, fertilizer prices, seed prices, you know what? We, uh, 
much to my wife's chagrin, and I hope she doesn't listen to this because she's going to chew me, chew me a new one. I don't know if we'll, we'll, we'll be able to pencil in the black this year on some of the habitat stuff that we do. I hope I, I, we're looking at the money now and I think we can break even on it, but we're 13,000 right now. We are $13,000 in the hole on our habitat stuff between the seed fertilizer, herbicide, all the stuff that we've done. I mean, it's a 13,000 right now. It's a $13,000 investment. And I'm not even done drilling yet. So there you got fuel and everything else going into that. But that's what we're putting on the landscape to make sure. And and again, I I changed our protocol to where before I was focusing on deer and then turkey was a a byproduct. Turkey habitat and food and that type of stuff was was a byproduct because we had other uh, habitat around us and crop rotation around us that, that really served their needs fairly well. Obviously, like we talked about, that has changed. So now... The deer are actually doing, they're, they're, they're going to do as good as they can do, but the turkeys are taking in the shorts. And unless we change what we're doing for our habitat stuff, they're good. They're, it's gone. They're done. So we're going to, I've, I've flipped 180. We're all in on turkey habitat and spring, summer, you know, nesting, brood and deer fawning habitat. That's, that's our focus because if we can start growing our turkey, getting better nest success and then having higher brood success, we'll get our turkey population growing back. And by default, our does will have better habitat to give birth in, hopefully have better survivability out in some of these big blocks of cover from our predators. Cause we, you just, can't, we can't keep up with the coyotes and, and everything else. So we're just going to have to focus on habitat for right now. So we're going to, we're all in on changing some, making some big changes across the landscape. I, I say all that because, and I was having a conversation, this was a continued, excuse me, conversation uh, with some friends regarding non-resident hunters, state agencies, state, um, how, how states allocate licenses, et cetera. Like we talked about before, uh, there's, a, it, it, every state Resident hunters have an absolute thorn in their ass about non-resident hunters. And almost every state hates the level of non-resident hunting that goes on in their state. Every resident hunter wants more resident hunters to be uh, catered to rather than non-resident hunters. And what I started thinking about is a byproduct because I felt this directly when I moved here to Kansas. The reason why Kansas no longer has landowner vouchers, landowner tags, especially landowner tags, deer tags, I'm talking about deer. The reason why Kansas no longer, they used to, there used to be landowner tags and they were transferable tags like you have in a lot of Western Western states. The reason why Kansas got rid of them is because of the abuse that certain landowners and namely outfitters did with that program and the raping and pillaging of the resource that occurred and the, the, the problems that ended up happening, especially on some of the, uh, in and around some of the public land areas. And so non-resident, or excuse me, resident hunters of Kansas, if you get on any forum and you look at, re- 
the vast majority of resident hunters out here, I won't say vast, there's a, let's just say, there's a healthy population of resident hunters that absolutely hate the shit out of any outfitter. I know for a fact I dealt with it when I first moved here and I told people what I was doing because they looked at me like I was a scum of the earth because they had dealt with it in the past where some outfitter shows up, they rape and pillage the landscape. Don't give me... I was literally accused of this and some of the stuff that I was accused of is a legit byproduct of what I'm doing. I was accused of these things. One... I'm going to come in, I'm going to take over big blocks of ground, and I'm going to exclude everyone from it so no one can hunt anymore. And then I'm just going to come in and I'm just going to rape and pillage it. I'm going to run a bunch of hunters in here. I'm just going to rape and pillage it. We're going to kill all the animals to where now, even around all the ground that I hunt, there's not going to be any animals left anymore. I literally have a, a, a neighbor who got upset at me last year because she saw a ground blind that I had set up on the middle of one of our properties, 400 yards from her fence line, 800 yards from where her family was going to be hunting. And she saw the blind, she saw what was going on, and she's like, son of a bitch. And they didn't have a good good, uh, uh, deer season because of, again, I've talked about coyotes, I've talked about crop rotation, I've got chronic wasting disease, the drought, we... Our deer population took it in the shorts last year. And because they didn't have a good season on their land, her instant thought was, Chris Rowe is shooting too many deer. Little did she know, I only put a couple people up there and we never killed a single deer on that property or even around that. Why? Because there weren't any deer there. So I'm not going to put my hunters in a place where I know that there's no deer. Okay? So she perceived me to be raping and pillaging the landscape, even even though she knows I don't. She knows how much work I put in there because she drives by. She sees me up there with a spray rig. She sees me up with a no-till drill. She sees the habitat conversions that we're doing. She knows damn well how much work that we put in on the landscape and, and how much input we put in on the wildlife management side and how much I patrol and make sure we don't have poaching and trespassing and everything else. Okay, And she knows we only run a handful of hunters. But it was an emotional thing. She, this is the first year that they had a really rough deer season. And for whatever reason, it was, well, it's got to be the outfitter's fault. Chris Rowe, Prairie Storm, Heartland Pride, all the other outlet, out, outfitters around us in this area, it's all of our faults. Well, I can't say what, what the other guys, how many other hunters, I, I mean, I, I know how many, other, how many of the hunters, those other guys are, are running. But we ran a handful of guys on seven thousand acres in the vast majority of time we are hunting in the interiors of our property nowhere near our neighbors so no but when again when we first moved here my wife is friends she grew she grew up with a woman a a girl high school friends that woman ended up moving out here marrying someone out here we didn't know that at the time it was just kind of one of those small world coincidence things but anyway we started going to church up with with them up there and and that was literally the initial when they heard what i was doing you see it in their face they're like oh yeah 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 oh yeah you know there was another guy that was out here that, that that was doing that and you start asking questions and you turn around and find out oh yeah yeah no that other guy 
burned bridges, screwed everyone around him, raped and pillaged the landscape, basically just scorched earth, left nothing for anybody else, pissed everybody else off. Okay? So this is what I walked into. Unbeknownst to me at the time, I walked square into that. Everybody, I mean, just there was a, a cadre of people that just could not stand me. Hell, some of them still don't like me just because of the principle of the thing. But the reason why is be, it's, it's not unfounded. It's not unfounded that a lot of outfitters just rape and pillage. They do nothing but put a bait pile on the neighbor's fence line and then run as many hunters in that spot as they as they can, as long as there's deer jumping the fence, as long as there's turkeys coming out in the field. They will that's the thing, is some of these guys have no clue. They live in other states, all they do is lease the ground, and they show up right before the deer season, or they show up right before the turkey season. They have no clue that there's only five birds on this stretch of the river for two miles. And if all five birds walk out and there's two hundred Let's just say there's three hunters sitting in a blind and each of those hunters has two tags each. One, two, three, boom, five birds hit the ground. That outfit, hey, my hunters got their birds. Yeah, woohoo, yippee, yippee, yippee. And you just shot every single tom that's on that river bottom. Now how many, how many birds are available for those kids of the landowner that's next door? For the other family that wants to hunt? For the other hunters that lease that ground? For the other hunters that are going to process, they don't give a shit. I got mine, and we'll just we'll just turn and burn. And then when the population gets so shitty that I can't have success, and my hunters start getting unsatisfied or dissatisfied with my operation, well, I just won't lease the ground, and I'll just I'll go lease some other ground. I'll move my operation to another area, and I'll just rinse and repeat. And then it's going to take a number of years for the other area to recover. But meanwhile, everybody else around there has got to suffer, especially, especially in the past, largely, and even today, a lot of the landowners are out. They do, no one around here does. None of the landowners out here do habitat improvements, except very few, like the landowners I work with and some of the absentee landowners I work with and the lessees that I work with. Most of the farmers, they're worried about their crops. They're worried about commodity prices. They're worried about their equipment. They're worried about fuel costs. They're worried about herbicide. They're worried about cattle grazing and how much grass or not grass we're getting. They're worried about fixing fence. They don't have time to worry about putting in a food plot for deer. Who gives a shit about deer anyway? Maybe I'll, you know, when it's rifle season, maybe I'll drive the pasture with my truck and if I see a deer, I'll shoot it. And, and for the younger generation or those people that do enjoy hunting, the same thing. They're working nine to five, Monday through Friday, barely making minimum wage out here. They've got other things that they're spending, you know, that they're worried about. Paying bills, putting food on the table, maybe, maybe putting a little money aside for retirement or insurance, or maybe fix the house up. Like, good luck with that. Okay, so they're not putting money on the ground for for conservation, habitat. No, but they would like to go out and hunt, and they hope that the agriculture and the river bottoms out here support at least a viable, at least some semblance of a viable population of animals to hunt. So I started thinking, all the animosity that is spewed towards outfitters, some of it rightly so. I see the issues directly with the outfitters that are around me. I got a question. 
Now, if you look at now, obviously, I'm an outfitter. I, I guide hunt. I outfit and I guide hunts. I, I am a licensed outfitter down in Arizona. I take people out down there as well. Okay. Um, and if I had private land in Colorado that I had access to that had elk on it, I would absolutely take people hunting on in Colorado. I just don't. I have no desire to to, to in Colorado. The public land game sucks. So from an outfitter, you know, licensing standpoint, blah, 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 blah. I have no desire to do it on public land and go through all the the permitting and all the the crap that goes through that. So no. But if I had access to private, good private ground and and I could take hunts on it, absolutely I would. I, I enjoy it. So I'm part of that bastardized, that that just dirty public, if you will, on the landscape of hunting. But if I look at Arizona, so if you look at Arizona, Arizona has a fixed number of tags. If, I, if I'm going to guide in unit nine, it's going to give out, you know, let's just say it's going to give out hundred tags. Well, it's going to give out hundred tags regardless. Now, all 100 tag holders might reach out to an outfitter and 100% of those 100 hunters could all be with an outfitter or 100 of those hunters, all 100 of them might all be a DIY hunter. It's irrelevant, really, on the landscape as far as how, how what what's going to happen because there is no over-the-counter hunting. There is no general season hunting. It's all limited. Whether you're a resident of Arizona or whether you're a non-resident of, of Arizona, there is only 100 tags given out, period. Now, it's up to the, those tag holders to figure out, okay, do I want to try to do this myself? Or would I like to work with someone that might be able to help me have a little bit higher level of success? All right? That's one thing. But when you look at some of these outfitters, in like, here we are, Kansas. Now, Kansas non-resident deer are limited. Absolutely. But Kansas resident deer, that's unlimited. And turkeys, that's unlimited, unlimited for everybody. So when you look at an unlimited resource, let's take the turkeys for a second. The state does not regulate how many non-resident turkey hunters can come into a unit and shoot birds in the face. So if you have an outfitter that that takes up shop on a chunk of, of real estate and they bait or decoy or whatever, they sucker in every turkey for plus or minus two miles, plus or up and down that river bottom, if they sucker every turkey under their property, they can shoot them in the face and there's nothing wrong with that. As far as the state's concerned, there's nothing wrong with that. And then they can do it next year. And then they can do it next year. And then they can do it next year. And they can do it next year. And literally, given what we know, with I mean, Marcus Lashley, uh, Mike Chamberlain, blah, 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 blah. All the people that are, all the turkey biologists and researchers talking these days about harvest and habitats and blah, 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 what we're seeing, habitat changes, what we've talked about here. Try to be a part, be a part of significant added mortality, additive mortality, sorry, to where that population just goes right in the tank. Done. Now, granted, don't get me wrong, resident hunters can do the same thing. You could have a family of 20 different people all decide to go out and get two birds, two tags each, and they could do the exact same thing. They're not outfitting shit. They're just going out there. There's a whole piss pile of friends and family, and every one of them wants to go shoot a turkey in the face, and so they do, and they can literally drive the population right down into into the toilet. And the state has no problem with that. 
Because the state's just going to, over time, maybe, maybe, the state will realize, oh, well, we don't have the birds anymore. Okay, well, we're going to have to adjust. Okay. Well, then they adjust, and then it is what it is. But most of the time, resident hunters constitute father and kids or one, a buddy or a brother, you know, a, 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 a a kid of a family or a siblings of a family or a cousin or, you know, a kid from high school or it's individuals or maybe individual, a father with a, their, a couple kids, All right? Usually resident hunting does not entail massive concentration of hunters in an area that essentially turn and burn where they're putting pressure on the resource, the entire, like for the vast majority of the season, multiple people over and over and over again, multiple people that have an incentive in their finite window. Like again, when we're talking about non-resident hunters and let's talk turkeys to start, they're unlimited. A non-resident hunter wants to come out and shoot a Rio, Rio Grande Turkey for his slam or whatever he wants to do. Okay, whatever. They're going to typically book a hunt with an outfitter. They're going to come out for a a three-day window. Generally speaking, they're a three-day hunt. In that three days, because they've paid for those three days, they are going to have an incentive to shoot something in the face. So if a a smaller gobbler comes in, a two-year-old comes in with a tiny beard, they're going to shoot it in the face. If a jake comes in and it's on day three, they haven't seen any birds and they finally get a jake to come in, they're going to shoot it in the face. A lot of people will, will feel the pressure to, to fill the tag because I paid for it. I paid for a hunt. I paid for, you know, I wanted to get a turkey. I wanted to get that Rio Grande. I travel. I spent the money to travel here, whether it was flying or driving. I spent the money on non-resident tags. I, I paid the outfitter to, to take me to this area. I, I have an, I have an ex- expectation of being able to shoot a turkey in the face. So I'm going to shoot a turkey in the face. Okay. That's that three days. Well, guess what? There's another hunter next three days, and the next three days, and the next three days, or the next week. And next, there's most outfitters are booking multiple one after the other, after the other, after the other. They're trying to maximize their profits. I'm not arguing that. Everybody wants to do that. Okay. There's a there's a there's a threshold in there somewhere on the on the scale of ethics, given the resource that they're they're tapping into. But quite honestly, at some point, you're gonna have everybody's going to have their own ethical threshold and ethical value set. Mine might be one way and somebody else's might be absolutely different. And there are absolute value sets out there that they don't give a shit. Well, the state allows us to hunt, you know, shoot this many birds. The state allows two birds per hunter. So I'm just going to stack them in here. And if I see gobblers still strutting out in the field, I don't know if it's one bird, if it's two birds. I don't know if they're the only birds within two miles, plus or minus my location. Um, If that bird comes in for a client, we're going to shoot it in the face. I cannot argue with the with the resident hunters and others, and the DIY and, and eh, no, I'm not even gonna call. I'm not even gonna put the DIY hunters in there yet because there's enough DIY hunters that go from state to state to state to state to state to state to state. And and I shot ten birds this year. I shot twelve birds this year. Okay, well, mm, okay, well, you're just spreading out your your mortality across a bunch of different areas, but you're still imparting that increased level of harvest in this a finite area but we, let's just let's just stick with the outfitters because again i'm in this pool 
I swim in this pool. When you have a not when you have an unlimited unlimited license structure for turkeys, say for instance, or for deer. Now there's a quota. Okay, there there is a quota for for how many deer tags are given out. And as a, as a non-resident, um, nowadays it, it pays to have a preference point. Um, but the quota is a, for a unit, X number of tags for a unit. Well, let's just say f- for the past five years, I've been fostering, I've been talking with 50 different hunters. And I decided this year, I'm like, guys, this is the year. This is the year to put in. Go ahead and put in for your license. With five preference points, every single one of my guys is going to draw a tag, guys or gals. All 50 of those people are going to draw a tag. And guess what? I could stack all 50 of those guys on my 7,000 acres, and I could waylay the ever-living piss out of my deer population on my property. And I could set up a a bait pile on my neighbor's fence lines, and I could sucker every... uh, Obviously, we have the better habitat around us, but I could do what all the other outfitters do, and I could just go and set up a bait pile on our our neighbor's property, and I could sucker off every deer that we can, and I've got a guy sitting in a stand that's going to shoot it, just put it on the ground. Can finite areas of the habitat, especially, okay, remember what I said before. We are in linear we are on the fringe edge of what nat- nature would have allowed whitetails to expand into. Agriculture allowed the whitetail to really flourish out in this, this landscape. Same thing with turkeys. But we are seeing a shift in the, the crop rotation and the agriculture and the climate. Moisture cycles and temperatures in the fall and the winter to where we're seeing a shift in what the carrying capacity, especially with chronic wasting disease, we are seeing a shift in the carrying capacity of our deer herds and our turkey herds, or turkey uh, flocks and populations out here. Turkey herd. Turkey herd what? Um, To where if we stack a piss pile of people into these narrow corridors of productive habitat. We absolutely can negatively, disproportionately impact the population dynamics in a finite, in a, in a small area. Now, granted, yes, you're going to have movement up and down these, some of these corridors, depending on what the habitat looks like. But when you have the ability to run as an outfitter, especially you're booking hunts, you're encouraging those people that draw a tag to come hunt with you in your little area, all the ground that you lease or all the ground that you own or all the ground that you manage. You are artificially concentrating hunters on the landscape because if everybody had to do a DIY style hunt, I would make the argument that there would probably be a hell of a lot more dispersed hunting, or at the very least, you'd have a hell of a lot of concentration around public hunting areas. And then a lot of the private land areas would probably have very little hunting pressure on it. All right. But 
when you look at outfitting, you have these pockets of concentrated harvest, concentrated mortality. And quite honestly, I would say artificially inflated concentration of mortality on the landscape. So, with that being said, if I want to get, and I just alluded to this, if I want to get a, a, a guide's license, which I have, I'm licensed guide in Arizona, I have to go to Arizona physically and I have to take a test. I have to go to the headquarters, uh, well, Pine Top. I've got to go down there. I have to sit in a room by myself or proctored with it, someone else, but I'm no cheating, not, not open book. I have to go sit in a room and I have to take a test. And I've got to answer, I don't know, is it 100 questions or whatever? I've got to answer a bunch of questions. Everything from from first aid stuff to elk, since I'm focused elk only. If I was a fisher, fishy, uh, fishing guy as well, that's even, a, yeah, that's even more. So mine's elk focused, okay? Big game focused. So everything from first aid stuff, emergency stuff, elk and deer stuff, non-motorized use stuff, I have to take a test and I have to pass that test. And if I pass that test, then the state will allow me to uh, to pay for a license. And I have to renew that license every year. I have to pay them for the license. Now, guess what? That license costs at the, at the moment $300. Oh, but by the way, in order to be licensed, you have to have a, a hunting license. Well, guess what? I'm a non-resident. So I have to have a non-resident hunting license. So every year I'm spending about 150. If, I, if, if I'm, if I'm, don't I think this is right? I think I'm spending about. What the hell am I spending? It was about 450 bucks a year. On my life, and then you got to have your first aid stuff. You got to make sure your first aid, your first aid, uh, CPR certificate, blah, blah blah. All that stays current. You have to, you know, all the ins- with the insurance and everything. I'm, I think I'm dropping at least about 450 bucks a year, just to just to have that piece of paper that allows me to guide an elk hunter in Arizona should somebody want me to, to hire me to, to, to guide them in Arizona. All right? Colorado. If I wanted to guide in Colorado on public land especially, not only do I have to have a, a Department of Regulatory Affairs, okay, in Colorado, they have a, 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 I have to get an outfitter's license from the state of Colorado. That's a chunk of change. Not only do I have to have an outfit, a license there, but if I'm going to be on public land, now I have to have a permit from the Forest Service. And this is, okay, it's the same. It's the same in Arizona. If I have a client and if I'm going to guide in on public land, I have to have a Forest Service permit. Down in Arizona, that's a little bit easier because you can go wherever the heck you want and you can get a Forest Service permit, whichever forest, you, wherever, whatever unit did you end up getting hired in. In Colorado, that's not the way it is. You have to choose an area. You have to choose a finite area. And then you petition, you go to the, the Forest Service and that and you go and ask them, hey, in this area of this particular forest, in this area of this particular national forest, can I outfit and can I guide hunters here? And they're going to look. Do they have other outfitters in there? Is it already saturated? If yes, then your answer is no. Pick another spot. But if there's a if there's room if there's not a okay if you'd like to guide there okay we approve you to get a permit in here okay fine 
you still got to get a permit. You have to pay for that permit from the Forest Service. And you've got to go down through. They've got to inspect all your gear. You've got to, I mean, it's a, it's a process, man. It's a process to get permission. And quite honestly, the state of Colorado will not give you a permit. It's the last I knew, the state of Colorado will not give you an outfitter's or guide's license to hunt or to guide on public land until you have permission from the Forest Service to do so. It's kind of like a tandem deal. Now, if you're on private land, it's a little bit of a different story. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a fiasco. In Kansas, just go on Instagram and call yourself an outfitter. And then go get people to send you money. And you're an outfitter. There's zero regulation. There's zero oversight. There's zero limitations. None. Just go put up your shingle and call yourself an outfitter. No, I'm not a guy that likes government regulation. I'm just the opposite. However, I can see the case that people have and the, the issue people have when we're dealing with a public resource. Okay, what did we talk about last time? What did I say? What, what, what was I mentioning earlier about the North or the, the previous podcast with North American Model of Wildlife Conservation? It is a public resource. The public, the, the, the wildlife of the state is managed for who? The people of the state. It's a public resource. It's not a private resource per se. Okay. So when you're talking about a state that, especially where you have unlimited access to game tags, wildlife tags, turkey tags, namely, or you have the ability to attract a pile of the hunters that are permitted for an area and concentrate them in these localized areas where your outfitting business either leases ground, owns ground, operates on, blah, 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 blah. There have been resident hunters, and I don't, I'm asking you the question. Number one, should there be licensing? Should there be licensing? Now, I'm going to say my opinion on that, not necessarily. I don't know if there needs to be licensing from the standpoint of I need to uh, bequeath the king's the king's coin to the king just for me to be able to to play in the court. No, I, if I'm going to give a, a, a license fee, now I, obviously Arizona, I do. Arizona, I do. I I, I pay them three hundred dollars for the privilege of just being able to go and guide in their state. I'm not a fan of that, but it is what it is. That's baked into the cake. I knew that going into the deal, right? Should Kansas have that? Should Kansas have a state license that you pay the state or whoever, it would have to be the state, to be a licensed guide and outfitter? I don't know about that one. I'm, I'm, I, 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 I don't know. If, if it's just a, you have to do, z, you don't have, the, the, the guide or the outfitter has to do zero, zilch, except hand them a check, hand them a pile of cash, and then the state goes, okay, now go out and rape and pillage. No. If that's the case, no. Not at all. Status quo. Keep it the way it is. Now, 
Here's what I wonder. Is hunting conservation? Really? Especially when we talk about what we see is as far as a lot of outfitters. And again, I'm going to, I'm going to focus on the Kansas because I am one. I can speak from this pool and I stand on my fence lines and I watch the people around me running their hunts and, and, and suckering everything off that they can while they do nothing. All they do is they just buy a, a pile of corn and put their ground blind or a box blind or tree stand next to our property and hope to sucker off whatever they can. Okay, They're not putting anything into the, into the system. There's no input. There's no year-round equitable conservation input into the system. It is nothing but take from the system. Take of a public resource. And quite honestly, take from the neighbor's efforts on that resource. So here's a question. If hunting is conservation and people believe that, couldn't there be a discussion that if you're going to be an outfitter, if you're going to be a, uh, if you're going to run hunts and you're going to stack people in on your property, lease, whatever, Couldn't it be an interesting discussion about whether or not in order to achieve a state license to allow you to do so, you have to demonstrate X number of acres of functioning food plots that you've put on the landscape. X number of acres of nesting habitat, brood habitat, fawning cover, that you've and you, that you've enhanced or created on the landscape. I'm not talking about well, I protected. Who gives a shit? It would be protected if you were there or not. Most likely, I'm talking about did you put a net increase in the productivity of the habitat in your area? Are you as an outfitter putting an input, a positive input into the productivity of the system? to warrant the level of take that you're removing from the system. Make it a a per person deal. Like for every X number of acres you create and maintain in food plots or create and maintain into nesting cover or uh, escape cover or blah, blah, whatever, whatever you've developed a net increase on the landscape for X number of acres, you can take 100 or 200. You know, for every every acre that you do, you can take 200. Or so what, I don't know. I don't know what the number would be. But should, could, could there, and should there, that's the other one, should there. And if you think there should be, could there be a habitat buy-in in where if you're going to be an outfitter, you're going to run hunts, you have to demonstrate that you are putting resource, you're increasing the resources that directly benefit the productivity of the deer 
in your if you're a deer hunter, if you're gonna guide deer, you have to demonstrate deer. If you are a turkey hunter or turkey outfitter, you need to demonstrate turkey. Bait piles don't cut it because they do jack shit other than supplement and, and subsidize raccoons, and put aflatoxin on the landscape, and feed deer for a tiny infraction amount of time. And then the rest of the year, it does nothing for productivity. It does nothing to increase productivity on the landscape. Now, we could have a conversation of whether you run deer feeders, and if that's the case, then it better not be just corn. You better be running protein pellets and actually honest-to-goodness deer food And then likewise, you better demonstrate that you have enough feeders across your chunk of ground where you're actually moving the needle on the deer food that you're providing. There's enough research out of Texas. There was a great podcast. This goes back, one of the earlier podcasts of the Deer University uh, uh, podcast, they had a good discussion with the folks down in Texas about what it actually means to provide supplemental feed to where you're going to move the needle on deer health, deer herd, and deer productivity. If you're buying bags of feed in 50-pound bags, you're providing snacks. That's, that's their research, not mine. You better be buying pallets and semi-loads of feed. To, in or, to actually demonstrate that you're moving the needle on the productivity of the deer that's in your area or the turkeys that are in your area. And, and we can have a big discussion on whether you should actually supplementally feed turkeys anyway. And quite honestly, I'm sorry, I, digress, I, 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 I am remiss. We're in a chronic wasting disease area. I would say, how about we not put feeders out on the landscape? How about we not put bait piles on the landscape? Period. End of discussion for deer or turkeys. And if it maybe if you if you want to allow people to put feed on the landscape, then maybe you allow it in a manner like we do, where we take I've got a I've got the uh, Swisher commercial Sp- commercial pro spreader, or you get another spreader and you literally take hundreds of pounds or thousands of pounds of corn and then you spread it across many acres to where it simulates exactly what a a harvested cornfield would be like. If you want to have that conversation, okay, we can have that conversation. Maybe I'll, I, I can, I can, okay, sure, let's continue that maybe. But deer feeders, maybe we, we nix those. Bait piles, nix those. Because obviously they're, they're not increasing turkey productivity. Their aflatoxin and coons alone are causing negative impacts on our turkeys. It's not doing anything for a deer, right? So I'm talking about actual habitat improvements, actual timber stand improvements in some areas, actual nesting brood habitat improvements, fawning cover. Wouldn't that be interesting? Wouldn't that be an interesting discussion? Because I would, I would, I'm very interested in what the resident hunter might think about a situation like that. Because now if that's the case and we have outfitters and quite honestly, I would, I would treat it like, um, like wetland banking and any biologists that are listening to this, you know what I'm talking about with wetland banking. You want to disturb one acre of wetlands. You need to provide two or five or whatever acres of enhancement or ed creation. You're, you're creating a net increase on the wetlands. You're not just doing a one for one 
or you're not just doing, or I'm, I'm going to impact one acre wetland, but I'll give you a quarter acre of uh, uh, preservation of this existing wetland. No, no, we're still a net loss of an acre. So if you're going to take away this acre of wetland, you're going to create two acres of wetland. So where now we are at least a net increase of one acre of wetland. That's your buy-in. That's your that's the that's the cost of you playing the game. I'd love to see something like that for I my bias, I would love to see something like that for outfitters. You have to get a permit from the state to be an outfitter. And your permit is contingent. It is your permit will dictate how many hunters you're allowed to take as an outfitter based on the number of acres you can demonstrate constructively, actually move the needle on habit food plots, habitat improvements. And I think the state biologists come out and inspect it or the game warden comes out and inspect it. Every year, you have, I know for a fact the state's going to come back around, well, it's just going to add workload and that's going to, you know what, cry me a freaking river. Because the state is making damn money from non-resident hunts. They're making, re- they're making money off their hunting, right? Right? How about we do something as a state and how about we do something as an outfitter body and a group of hunters to actually put something on the, on the landscape? Now, as a as a private landowner, if you're if you're if you're a kid or a, a a landowner or whatever, and you want to hunt your own property, what that's fine. Go do it. Do you do you, man? You do you. If you've got family, that's fine. And I understand. Trust me. Trust me. Colorado, you see it. Arizona, you see it. Oh no no no. Oh, I'm not hiring an outfitter. Oh, these are all my friends. Uh huh. Yeah. Magically, all of a sudden, you have this friend that showed up from New Jersey that's going to hunt. And oh, by the way, you have never seen your friend. And you probably will never see your friend again after this, but they're friends, right? They're not a client. No, no. So I know it could be abused. But what could we do on the landscape if we did something like that? Or maybe it's not even a, a you know, you. De- I would love it as I... I'm, I'm biased because, again, I know I'm biased, okay? I know that I'm biased because I'm already doing it. Like I just said, we're $13,000 out of our pocket to, to convert a bunch of ground into nesting, brood habitat, fawning habitat, and, and food plot. That's, that's what we're doing to convert. I've got stuff that's already out there on the landscape that, that's the normal standard stuff, okay? This is just to convert and start growing. I know we're already $13,000 in the hole. I hope we recoup it. I'm working hard to, to hopefully recoup it. But if we don't, then I hope maybe in the future we could recoup it. So obviously I'm biased. But maybe it's not even a, a situation where the outf- I think the outfitter should have to be able to demonstrate on the landscape they operate a net increase in available habitat and productivity of habitat. I could see where the state would bastardize it and say, well, no, but you need to pay, you know, it's, it's $500, you know, each, well, this is what the forest service does. You have to pay a percentage. Your, your forest service permit is based off of the percentage of what your income is going to be. You have to declare your income. 
how many hunters are you taking? And, and what are you charging? How much money are you making off the national forest? Okay, you're making that much? Then we get a percentage. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe that ends up being the case uh, for out here. All right, hold on. Pause. Yeah, that is what it is. Um, maybe, maybe, and I, I say bastardized because I know exactly how these funds get worked, but maybe it would be, be something where you say, okay, Outfitters, no, you don't have to put anything on the ground in your area. However, you pay $500 per hunter or what? Or a percentage of, of your, your hunt fee. You know, obviously your turkey is going to be different than your deer, blah, 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 blah. It's a percentage of your hunt fee, just like the National Forest. But I would make sure that if that's the case, then it gets earmarked regionally for those species. Similar to what Colorado does with its uh, auction and raffle tags for its big games. So moose, elk, deer, sheep, all those. You, you've got the governor's tags, okay? And you could, there's some that get auctioned off and, and they go to the highest bidder. Stupid amounts of money get thrown at that. <clears throat> or they go to a raffle and all the raffle money goes into it. So the, the money that gets generated from those auction and raffle tags goes into an earmarked pot of money that is only available. So for moose, it's, uh, what is it? Moose, sheep, and goats are in one pot of money. Elk, deer, pronghorn are in another pot of money. And there is a, there is a committee made up of sportsmen and agency folks and conservation groups that sit and review. So say you get $100,000 in that pot of money. That committee will meet and they will take proposals for projects and habitat improvement projects. And then that committee will go down through those projects and weigh the merits and pluses and minuses of all those projects. And they will award grant money to help pay for those habitat projects. Maybe we do the same thing. Maybe for outfitters, guides and outfitters, you... You have to declare how many hunters you got and a, a chunk of money. How about we do this? Either or. There you go. Either or. The outfitter has the option to either put stuff on the ground for their property, in which case they have to have a minimum number of acres per hunter or whatever, however you want to look at it. The outfitter has either or option. They can put They can put money on the ground on their own property and enhance their own property and achieve their outfitter's license for that year, or they can pay a fixed amount per, you know, a percentage of their income. And I would make it healthy, you know, like healthy. Make it a percentage of their in, of what they're gonna, uh, the income they're gonna generate off their guiding and outfitting gets paid to the state in a, in a not a general fund. It has to be earmarked to be used within that, I would say, region. You, I, I don't think you can make it in that unit, in, in whatever unit, but the state has its regions. It That money is earmarked for habitat projects developed, earmarked for that region. And guides, outfitters, the public land hunter, uh, agency folks can meet the, the that region area folks along with that region, landowners, outfitters, whatever, can sit in a committee and they can... Requ- you know, the state will re- you know receive. They will put out a request for proposals. They will receive habitat proposals, which will probably be on private land of of different landowners, 
And now you can have a committee where they can dole out maybe grant money to be used on maybe private land to enhance wildlife on private lands in these regions. That's your buy-in to be a guide and outfitter in the state of Kansas. Ho-ho! What say you? I'm going to end it there. See ya.